guys, welcome back to the Paradigm Project. Today we have David Crowley to talk with us. Um, but before we get into our, our topic of discussion, Mr. Crowley, why don't you tell us a little about yourself, some hobbies or interests you have? I love to play guitar. I've played off and on uh, since I was a kid, and uh, it's one of my favorite things to spend time doing. I love hiking, a little bit of backpacking, and love reading, and I actually love being at Paradigm. This has been a, a wonderful home for me. So before you came to Paradigm, I've heard that you were a lawyer, you, had a, you have a law degree, how long did you practice law for? I practiced law for about nine years. And before that, I was involved in various business ventures, uh, doing things like that. So I uh, joke around and tell people I'm in recovery now, nine years in recovery <laughs> from, from being an attorney. Why did you stop practicing law? I wanted to do something that made more of a difference. I was doing mostly criminal defense and just got tired of trying to get people out of messes they'd gotten themselves into. And... Uh, my my oldest son started at Paradigm the first year it opened, and I kind of started falling in love with the idea of Paradigm the more I got to know it. I spent four or five years on the board here, and that's where I really fell in love with it. And so when I was able to find a way to jump out of practicing law and come here, I did. I didn't know you were involved with the school since day one. That's That's amazing. I wasn't involved with the creation of it, but when we heard about it the very first year, we took my oldest son and... Uh, went and checked it out. And we told him we'd register him for a couple classes. We ended up registering him for a full schedule and he was really unhappy. Um, he did not want to come, but two weeks after he was here, he loved it. That's and, amazing. uh, it just, it completely changed. Um, didn't, it changed him in a really good way. I mean, he wasn't like on a bad track or anything. It was just an amazing experience for him. And he went from not wanting to be here at all to loving it and coming full time for his whole Experience. That's amazing. I was curious, where did you get your degree from? J. Reuben Clark Law School at BYU. Okay, cool. So we have like two two texts for you know our episode today, the Bill of Rights and an, um, an essay you've written. I have some questions about the Bill of Rights first, though. Okay. So what like initially sparked your interest in the Bill of Rights or like founding documents? You know, it's a funny question because I came here feeling like I had a good grounding in that and realized how little I did. I grew up loving the Constitution as an idea. And my parents were patriotic and, and spoke of it in, in positive ways. And, and uh, that was my upbringing. And going to law school, I felt like when I practiced law, I was hoping to get into constitutional law, which is kind of hard to do, actually. In fact, criminal law is one of the areas where you get to do that a lot because you're dealing with search and seizure issues um, all the time. But when I came to Paradigm, I had this awakening. I realized I'd never read the Constitution in high school. I didn't read it in Boy Scouts. I didn't read it in college. And in a year of constitutional law in law school, I didn't read the Constitution, which makes you have that funny look on your face, just like it makes me have that funny look on my face. And the sad thing is, in a really important way, it's not relevant to practicing law. I mean, that sounds weird, but we studied case after case about what the judges said the Constitution meant. But we didn't spend any time studying what the Constitution originally was supposed to mean. And we've gone a long way from what it started. And that's really been an education for me at Paradigm as I've been teaching it to study it and learn how to teach what it is supposed to be. So I guess a question I would have would be, I hear a lot about precedent in law that like, you know, oh, this case is very important because it will either set a precedent or break an old precedent for a new one. Can you help me understand the concept of precedent? And do you feel like having that concept of precedent is keeping us from 
further studying the Constitution and making it more irrelevant because we're focused more on the precedent? That's a really deep question, and I like it. Um, there's a couple answers to that. One, my contracts professor in law school said, precedent means we stand by our past mistakes. And in an important sense, we do. The idea of precedent is we want the law to be predictable. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to plan our lives based on what the law is so that we can avoid getting ourselves in trouble by staying within the bounds of the law. You don't want a fickle dictator that's just going to change one day and Correct. the headings abound. Right, right. But when you combine precedent with an abandonment of original meaning of the Constitution, and you take on this fluid meaning of it's a living document and it means whatever we want it to mean today, then you can go anywhere you want with it and you're stuck because of precedent unless you can get a majority of judges on the Supreme Court to say, you know what, that was a mistake and we're going to change it. So you, you know, you've been talking about what the Constitution was originally supposed to mean. What do you mean by that? Like, have, have we strayed from its complete original meaning? <laughs> yeah. When you Ooh. read it, <laughs> when you read it and you realize, I mean, one of the things that I found frustrating when I started reading the Constitution and trying to teach it was just that. It's so different than what we're doing. Meaning, uh, for instance, Article 1, Section 8, the main place where it lays out the powers of Congress, it lays out very few powers. And you can group them essentially into five categories, power to tax, which the Articles of Confederation gave no power to tax to uh, the Congress. And so they were at the mercy of the states. They had to beg for money and the states continually said, no, nope, sorry, we can't <laughs> afford you. And so power to tax they put in and power to, to buy lands from the states to do the business of government. So it names specific things, uh, magazines, which I assume is where you put your ammo, arsenals where you put your weapons, dockyards for your ships, and barracks and things like that. That's not the word it uses, but it's essentially just to do the business of government. It does not anticipate the huge land that the government owns today. Aside from those two that are just kind of necessary to the operation of government, you have to have money and you have to have a place to do business. There's really just three categories. One is defense, one is immigration, and it's like one phrase. And then the third one is commerce. And it num names a bunch of things that are kind of like setting up a game board for commerce. So regulating commerce with foreign nations and with the Indian tribes and among the several states, and then post offices and post roads. So you can send and receive your bills, goods, payments, a fixed set of money, a fixed set of measures and weights, and, and a, just a series of simple things like that that just are necessary to do commerce. And that's all the power it gives. And when you look at the alphabet soup of all of the agencies that the government has today, 99% of them are not constitutional because they're beyond all of that. It's kind of scary. It is scary. So in that case, what do you think about, I think I'm pretty accurate when I say that the Second Amendment has become probably the most controversial amendment we have in the Bill of Rights. It's constantly like under attack of like people thinking we should ban firearms or put heavy regulations on them. What do you think about this new like cultural wave of just like hating the Second Amendment? I think it comes from a lack of understanding our history and understanding the purpose of that amendment in particular. The Second Amendment is the, the provision in the Constitution that guarantees everything else. The common phrase that I heard was always that um, the First Amendment protected by the Second or, or some, you know, to that. 
Yeah. Yeah. When when they try to make the Second Amendment about hunting or sports, it's not. Or muskets. It's the language <laughs> of it. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It's it's all about the reality that governments tend to always want to increase their power. And at a certain point, historically, there becomes an infringement on the rights of the people to a point where people may want to throw off that government. That's what the language of the Declaration says, that uh, the people have a right, even a duty, to throw off an, a government when it becomes oppressive. So with the the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, because they didn't happen at the same time, right? The Constitution came first, and then they added the Bill of Rights or the Ten Amendments. Why do you think that they, like, does, does the Bill of Rights fill a, like, a necessity that the Constitution can't? Does it provide some sort of insight that the Constitution cannot or whatever? It does. The Constitution, as you study it, is a structure. It has no morality built into it. It has no listing of rights. It's simply a structure. And it goes from Article 1, the legislature, Article 2, the executive, Article 3, the judicial, and then Article 4 is essentially some housekeeping and relationship of the states to the federal government. Article 5 is how you amend it. Article 6 is a little bit more housekeeping provision saying that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, that uh, all who take office in a state or federal government have to swear an oath to support and defend the Constitution. And Article 7 just says this is how we will adopt it. And that's it. There's not, it doesn't spell out any rights. And several of the states had bills of rights in their own state constitutions at the time. And some of the members of the convention, when it was done and they were ready to sign it, had this kind of a pullback a little bit and said, this is a serious omission. We didn't, we didn't list any of these rights that we've seen abused by the government we're just throwing off. And so we need that. And there was actually some debate because some people said, well, if, as soon as you make a list, anything not on the list becomes subject to being dismissed which is what the Ninth Art, uh, Amendment tries to resolve. The other side was, well, if we don't have it, it's not protected. And so one way to look at the Constitution is if you were to start your own society, what powers would you want to give to a group of people who were going to, you were going to give authority to make decisions for you? And what things would you specifically say, these things you can't make any decisions for me about. These are mine. The Constitution in Article 1, Section 8 lists out those powers I described a little bit ago that are powers that were said, yeah, I'm okay. If you decide the size of our army, how it's organized, that's fine. That's not going to trouble me. If we disagree, we can elect somebody else, but it's gonna, not going to hurt me day to day. I'm okay with you establishing courts. I'm okay with you making decisions about how many post offices and where the postal roads are and how much a dollar is and how much a pound is. That's fine. But on the other hand, don't tell me that I can't speak. Don't tell me that I can't write anything I want to to express my ideas. Don't tell me what I can worship and whether or not I do. Don't tell me whether I can assemble with other people. Don't tell me whether or not I can keep guns. And then a whole list of other things about when the government does charge you with a crime, what are all the protections that come into play there? And so you have these two lists. Here are the things we're agreeing you can do. And here's the things that are completely off limits. And because we have the fox guarding the hen house, we have the Supreme Court, which is part of this power structure. They have continually eroded that Bill of Rights down and down and down and down. 
infringed means come in at the edges. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, we're way into the edges. If you go into Mrs. Maurer's room, she has a Sears catalog from the early 1900s. Maybe it's even earlier than that. You could buy a Tommy gun from the Sears catalog, right? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things you can't, you can't do today because they have encroached and they have encroached and they have encroached. And, you know, simple truth is if you want to take over a society without firing a shot, control the media, control the education, control the guns. The people will do whatever you want. And so it's a big deal that the, that the Bill of Rights has secured and protected expressly the right to keep and bear arms and, and all of the others. Think about what we've gone through the last year. You can't go to church. You're shut down on, and, and you may say, well, this is a private business, but look how much speech has been shut down by, by the social media sites that are in, working with the government to silence one voice. Lots of things have been under attack. And so it is a, it's a troubling thing. And the Bill of Rights is there specifically saying you can't touch this. Yeah, but what do we do about it now that like it is being encroached on? What do we do? I have a question that's very close to that. So my question would be that like it would seem that there's two th answers to that, which would be that one, the Constitution could be flawed and we need to write something else because, I don't know, it's not modern enough. It doesn't take into account some argument, whatever. Or the Constitution, because I feel like everyone can agree that you look at it and you're like, okay, this has clearly been infringed. Now, what do we do about it? Because my understanding of the Constitution was that if these rights were being infringed, you were supposed to be pretty upset about it. And there's not a lot of people being pretty upset about it. So what do we do? I don't know if it's people that are not upset about it. It's just that, you know, like Mr. Crowley was saying, is just like the media is so controlled that like no matter what side you're on, whatever narrative they want to be played will be played. And so we've kind of got lost in the sauce, you know? It's a hard question. Yeah. Um, and it's one that takes us in the direction that, that Dallin's mentioned a couple of times here. And, and the Declaration of Independence was a revolutionary document. It proposed and declared revolution. But it also says it's clear that men will suffer while, while oppression is sufferable. We don't just, and we don't, we don't take on throwing off a government for transient reasons, the reasons that come and go. It has to be a big deal. It has to be a long-standing problem. First thing first is be informed yourself. Study it. Really learn it. And then share it with other people. And be vocal. Participate in local government. Start where you are. Start with building your own community, learning how to be involved in your own community, in your own school board, your own city council. We've gotten so far away from that that we're not really, it would be a frightening thing if we had a revolution today, right? We, we had our first settlement here in 1607 in Jamestown, the second one 1620 in uh, Massachusetts. And we were largely self-governing from then until 1776. The war started 1775 and it wasn't a revolution it was just a fight to be given the rights of British citizens. They weren't trying to separate. But we had been working on self-government, and people were very involved. Maybe not everybody, but people enlarged because it was small towns, small communities. People were deeply involved in local government. How many of you guys go to your local city council meetings? How many of your parents go to them? We've become disconnected. And so if we were to go in the direction of a, of a revolution like some people talk about today, it probably would turn out really badly because <laughs> we're not used to self-government. We're actually used to a much more socialized, top-down, controlled system than what we were supposed to have today.
So why do you think the founding fathers or, you know, those... It was the Constitutional Convention where they discussed them, wasn't it? One of them. So the Bill of Rights came after the Constitutional Convention. I mean, okay. it was brought up there at the signing, essentially, um, that I can't, I forget his name, who said, I won't, I can't sign it without a Bill of Rights. Um, so it came later. Um, I think many of the same people were involved, though I, off the top of my head, I can't name who they were. Refresh me on your question. Right. Why did they choose to list the specific rights they did and leave out others? Because like, you know, the Ninth Amendment it talks about like, hey, there's more rights that humans have. But we're, they're just not listed. Why do you think they chose the ones they did? A couple answers to that. One is that it was a response to what they had been experiencing. They were putting explicit rights in where they had seen abuses. And so they considered that they probably hadn't identified everything, but that the Bill of Rights was an attempt to say, here are problems that we've seen that we want to address. And so, I mean, and like I said, there were Bills of Rights in many of the states constitutions already. So a lot of this thinking had already been going on, had been very much in the front of their minds. And so the rights that they named were rights that they had identified already and said, these are essential to liberty. They're essential to liberty. But the other part of your question is to talk more about what is a right um, and how we even come to that idea. I don't know if you want to go down that road, but we could spend a little time talking yeah, about that. Because I'd love to talk about your essay about truth and everything as well. Okay. I have a question that kind of brings your essay and the Bill of Rights together. You talked about how a lot of the specific rights that were, you know, written into the Bill of Rights um, were a reaction or were because of some rights that they had noticed infringed upon before the Revolutionary War. So if it was almost reactive, did they contain truth? Like, does the Bill of Rights contain truth or is it just them in reacting to their situation? It's a good question. What is truth? I, I would define truth as whatever is, how things really are. And when we talk about rights, we've moved into something that's a little different than when we talk about like scientific truths. Science has made a lot of progress because we have developed an ability to identify cause and effect. Cause and effect. If this, then that. And we see this pattern of regularity in the world around us. When it comes to human beings, there's something inserted in the middle between cause and effect or response, and that's choice. Cause, choice, effect, which means that our effects aren't consistent. Our effects change. Even though we may have the same cause, people can choose to respond differently to it. That choice is an essential piece of being human. And the rights that are identified are pretty much centered around protecting the right of choice, protecting the individual ability to make those choices in response to a particular situation. And it's based on what makes a happy, free society. And so when you say, well, is, it, is it based on truth? Is it true that in general, people are happier when they're allowed to make their own choices? Is it true that people are happier when they can express their ideas, including ideas that disagree with what else is going on in the world, disagree with other people? Is it true that people want to be left alone to make mistakes as well as successes in life? If those are truths, then the Bill of Rights contains truth. If it's true that it's important that I be able to speak my mind right or wrong. Right. That makes sense. Because like relevancy, like to our lives, like how is Article 3, you know, about quartering soldiers, how could that possibly be relevant 
But like when you think about it during the time before the Revolutionary War, when, you know, the, the British were coming in and just kind of living amongst um, the colonies, the citizens, like their choice to, you know, have soldiers invading their house was not was not there. Like they were just living amongst them, eating their food, you know, on their property. And it's not about like maybe the specifics, but it's about the principle. Yes. Yeah. And so that's why they they hadn't experienced everything. And so when they say the fact that we haven't listed everything here as as a specific right doesn't mean that there aren't more. And it's it's really a contract interpretation principle. Most of the time a contract is interpreted that it's limited to what's within the four corners of the of the document. If you didn't put it in the contract, it's not protected. That provision in the Constitution says, even though we've listed a bunch of things here that are protected by this Constitution, it's not exclusive. There are more rights that exist. For instance, the right to raise your children the way you see fit. That's not listed in the Constitution. And yet courts have routinely said, no, that's a parental right that is very limited when the government can get involved. So I guess to clarify to the question of, is Article 3 of the Bill of Rights still relevant today? What would you answer? Sorry, Amendment 3. That's my Just because we're not seeing a problem today doesn't make its protection irrelevant. Uh, if we found ourselves suddenly in a massive war situation, would you want soldiers to be able to just come take your house over because they needed a place to quarter their soldiers? Absolutely not. Then it's still relevant. Right. Just just because we don't see it happening and can't foresee that it will, it's still something that you wouldn't want, wouldn't want to have to, to deal with. I completely agree. Um, is there and what is the system in place for adding rights to the Bill of Rights? And if there is no system in place, should there be? So as I mentioned earlier, Article 5 of the Constitution expressly defines here's how you amend the Constitution. When we talk about the Bill of Rights, it's not a separate document. It is the first 10 changes to the Constitution. Each An amendment is a change. Each of those 10 amendments was a specific change to the Constitution. To amend it again today is the same process. We can go through the same process and add a new amendment to the Constitution. Back to our discussion of a little bit ago, unfortunately, the courts have just taken it upon themselves to just declare new rights. And so... Without the process of changing the document, the courts have just interpreted it to have things in it that it doesn't expressly say. And that's where we've gotten so far afield from what the founders intended, which takes us back to the question of what is a right? The word right isn't just coincidental. It comes from our idea of right and wrong. It's right that I should be able to speak my mind. And it's wrong for me to stop you from speaking yours. Certain things rise to such a level of importance that we've deemed them to be rights and give them that title, but it has to do with right and wrong. And so one of the things that we should be asking ourselves when somebody's proposing a new right is, is this really on the scale of right and wrong, number one, something that's right, on the scale of right and wrong, number two, is it important enough that it needs legal protection? So I would say that question goes very well into your essay. You talk about everyone having their own truth and their understanding of morality. So we clearly don't have a unified sense of morality as a society. So knowing that we don't have this morality, is there a way 
that we can govern and create laws without a common morality. Well, not only is there a way, it's automatic. There are kind of two parallel spectrums if you were to draw them out. And one of them is the morality spectrum. And by morality, I mean in, an internal compass that causes me to choose to do right. And I think you can simplify morality, not into religious terms, but into simply two principles. One, don't encroach on other people, their property or their reputations. And two, do all you've agreed to do. Regardless of your moral upbringing, we pretty well agree on those two concepts. They're huge. They are the basis for all contract law and most of our criminal law. And so what you see is on the one end, you have, if you have, as the founders, several of the founders made comments like, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government, right? Mm -hmm. If we had perfect morality, we wouldn't need laws. Now, whether that's absolutely true, I think there's still some need for structure in society, but it would be super minimal, which when you look at the Constitution, it's pretty minimal. As you move along the spectrum toward immorality, where you say, yeah, it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway, to amorality, where you say, no, it's not even wrong. I can do whatever I want at the far end. You increasingly have this, this automatic pressure to create laws to compensate for that. If your neighbor is is doing things that are encroaching on you in some way because he's not choosing to be morally guided by those two principles, sooner or later, you're going to call on somebody to say, can we make a law? Even something as simple as your neighbor buys this 10,000 watt stereo and he plays it at midnight. You call the police. They say, well, you know, there's no sound ordinance. I'll go ask him to turn it down. But if he doesn't, there's nothing I can do. Well, tomorrow morning, you call your city councilman and you say, hey, we need a sound ordinance. We need a noise ordinance because of this jerk next door. And every choice we make that abandons that principle of don't encroach on other people moves us along the spectrum of sooner or later, we're going to make a law to address this problem. Because if we don't choose to be good, we're not going to live like that. And so we're going to force people to be good through the use of laws. So this, I think, perfectly ties into this paragraph. This is in causes of differing perceptions in your essay, Perception, Reality, and Truth, Whatever it Is, Is. And it says, the second cause of differing perceptions is our imperfect senses, that some are deaf or colorblind or entirely blind or to be more abstract, that some do not perceive the wrongness of such acts as theft or murder does not negate reality. Imperfect senses merely misperceive the evidence but do not change it. Senses of hearing, sight, and morality guide us in our interactions with reality. Failure to perceive reality is not evidence that reality does not exist, but of a flaw or breakdown of the means of discovering that reality. The common idea of handicap, mental or physical, acknowledges our shared recognition that the breakdown is with the individual, not with an inconsistent reality. So my question there is, how do we decide whose senses are the closest to reality? Also, how do we hold... How do we hold those who may not perceive it, I guess, as close as others can due to whatever reason? Do we hold them to the same standard of, you know, like the don't encroach on others and blah, blah, blah? And is there, I don't want to say punishment, but is there the consequence of their actions? Is it, should it be held to the same standard as others? So don't let me forget to go to that one. If I can go to Dallin's question yeah. first, yeah. I don't want to forget that one. Everybody excluding handicaps of some kind, perceives, it seems, a pretty consistent reality. We sometimes get lost in the woods about, well, do you see green the same way I see green? It doesn't matter. We both point at that piece of paper over there and we say that's green. 
And we can even say it's light green or dark green. And so when it comes to moral issues, part of what makes it work in society is that we create laws where we come together and we decide as a group or those who represent us decide, here's where we're going to draw the line. And by drawing that line in a way that everybody knows, then you can govern yourself by this is where we've said, if you cross that line, you've gone too far. And so how do we decide, you know, where it is? That's a cultural and societal thing. And and yet the reality is that we're a similar enough people that if we share a culture, if we share uh, a common origin, we tend to have pretty common ideas about these things. And and one of the things that the founders did that wasn't original, but it was important was you write it down, you publish it so everybody knows what the law is. And so the law should reflect our morality. It shouldn't replace it, but it should be a, a decision. Some people may say, hey, you shouldn't even hurt my feelings. Other people say, unless I have a bloody nose, we can tough it out in the streets and you can hit me and I can hit you and that's okay. And we come together and we say, well, you know, we really shouldn't be hitting each other. That's an assault. We're going to define that as an assault. We're going to define a threat. Or actually, that's a battery. A threat would be an assault. Actual contact would be a battery. And so societies decide that. And they can, you know, if you look at history, there have been some shifting of that, but it still seems to follow those two principles. So like I was talking to my mom about comedians like Lenny Bruce, who back in the day were arrested on charges of public indecency and um, obscenity. So when a comedian is charged with obscenity, talking to my mom, she goes, yes, we should have more obscenity laws today. Um, it's disgusting to see how far the, the culture has gone towards allowing anything to be said. Whereas I would go completely the other option and say, holy cow, that was in America and not in some fascist dictatorship. That's insane that someone was arrested on obscene charges or for cursing. And so when you have things like that, where it's like such a big difference, how can, how can we still... Or I guess, where do, you, where do you get the idea that we have a common morality or something that we can all agree on? And where does that morality come from? Prior to the Civil War, the Constitution was interpreted to apply pretty exclusively to the federal government. Every state had its own constitution, and the Bill of Rights was not applied to the individual states. Many of them had similar Bills of Rights in their constitutions, but they were free within their own community, their own judges, their own legislatures to say, this is what we mean by obscenity. This is what we mean by this. This is what we mean by that. And each community could have their own standard. Some communities could have a very high tolerance for obscenity and create their laws to reflect that. Other communities could have a very strict obscenity uh, law based on their community values. With the advent of the Civil War, the Reconstruction era after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments brought some significant changes to the Constitution and to the way that it's interpreted. The 14th Amendment, in particular, extends the Bill of Rights to all of the states. And it, the Supreme Court took it from there and basically said, we will, we will enforce one standard across the board. The problem with that is that you then have kind of a race to the bottom or a race to the top, depending on what way they want to go, meaning we're all going to have to do the same thing. And so the pornography question was brought to the Supreme Court and they're like, well, I know it when I see it, but we're going to call this free speech. You know, these, these 
obscene images, we're going to call free speech and we're going to protect it, except in certain and, – and so they, they greatly reduce the ability of local governments to say, no, this isn't acceptable here. One of the geniuses of the founders was that you had dual citizenship. You were a citizen of the nation, but the Constitution only gave the nation those very limited powers. Everything else was reserved to the states or the people. And so the states – there were states that at the time of the Constitution's adoption had had – state churches. We look at that like, what? But they did. They had a state church. Um, there were lots of other things that states had that made them unique and were fully constitutional because the Constitution talked to the federal government. First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, etc. With the Civil War, you had the federal government telling states, you can't do what we did. Right. I don't know if you know this, but several of the seceding states wrote, wrote their own declaration of causes of secession, their own declarations of independence. And they listed the reasons why. And they, in some ways, followed the pattern of our declaration of independence, said, this is why we are. We're leaving. You're not following the rules we agreed to. We're out. And we came in and we won the war. We. The, the North won the war. And consequently, the South had to eat it. And so the North winning the war said that the federal government can tell the states what to do. And under the 14th Amendment, it expanded the reach of the Constitution and expanded the reach of the, the Supreme Court. And so many state laws have been invalidated by the Supreme Court because of that change. And, and if you look at what we said earlier on this spectrum of morality, you have the South insisting on continuing slavery and that's pretty far across the moral spectrum, right? And so you have this big push for law to come in and correct that. Well, every time you add another law to the books, you diminish freedom. You diminish liberty for everybody, right? When I don't like how Ava is behaving with her stereo so loud, that law applies to me too. If I, if I lobby to get a, a law passed, now I have the same problem. And so as we go inch by inch down that road, we're all burdened by all of those laws. And so the freedoms we had pre-Civil War have been greatly diminished since because the scope of the power of the federal government has been hugely increased as a consequence of the bad behavior of those states that insisted on maintaining slavery. So if they had just been good moral people from the beginning, we would have been, we'll say in air quotes, a more free people. We wouldn't have had that problem to bring on what we had, <laughs> right? Right. So if, if Ava chooses to, instead of just playing her stereo at midnight, comes over and gathers her neighbors together and says, hey, I'm going to be holding this big party. I got some music going. Is that okay with everyone? Everyone's like, yeah, for this one night, you know, we're going to do this. That way we don't need a noise ordinance because I might want to have a party and have loud music later. And if there's a law, then we're all under that law. So I guess a, a communication thing and, and a more moral people say, communicate with each other instead of bludgeoning each other to death with law. Yeah, the irony of being immoral is that you're saying, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm free. And in response, we get more laws that make us all less free. Yay. If instead we could communicate with each other, like you say, and say, "Can are you okay if we do this? And if not, well, how do I accommodate that? And, you know, if, if we can't agree, then where where do we go from there? But yeah, much better way to deal with those kind of problems. All right. Refresh me on your question. Right. The question was, in your essay, you, you address that people may have some sort oh, of... handicaps. Yeah, handicaps or whatever it is that makes their perception of 
the truth and the reality around them less accurate, maybe? So should they be held to the same standards as those who have a closer view of what is actually going on? So if we look at how our society has actually done that, there's a, there's a pretty clear answer there. As a minor, you're under the disability of minority, meaning that you're considered not able to make contracts. You're not held to the same standard for criminal behavior. And so, Except when you are. Which is, which is rare. And there's a process to certify you as an adult, right? Most crimes committed by people under 18 are called delinquencies. They're not defined as crimes. And there's a process trying to keep them from getting into the big house where they learn a lot of more bad behaviors. Likewise, we have a history of uh, insane asylums. We, we've moved away from that, but we still, we still have situations where if people can't, the criminally insane are locked up somewhere right? If you can't function in society without encroaching on other people in a way that's dangerous, you're probably going to end up being locked up somewhere. It may not be a prison, but it'll be some kind of a facility that says you don't operate in the real world with enough reliability that you're safe to be out there. And so that's how we deal with it. We acknowledge that it's not that he's just operating on his own set of morality and that's okay. We don't say that. We say this doesn't work. You can't be in society with us if you're going to be dangerous like that. So my question to that is, who gets to decide who's crazy, right? Because we, we all have these imperfect senses and we all have this imperfect view of reality. So we can't really debate what reality is because no one fully understands it. So if someone's, you know, going crazy, maybe they're trying to overthrow a government or something, and we go, oh, you're crazy. We got to lock you up. How, you know, it seems like, that works really great until you're not crazy and someone wants to lock you up because they don't like what you're saying. Well, I'd say majority rules at that point. It wasn't the whole purpose of the Constitution to like not have majority rule because like democracy is tyranny. Democracy is defined as like perfect democracy. Well, kind of. I think I think the Constitution is set up just to protect the most amount of people it can. And I think if you are acting out in a way that's not regular to a society, then maybe... I don't know. I don't want to be like harsh, but like, don't be part of that society. <laughs> you know, I don't know. That might be inaccurate, but. Well, so part of the answer is what I said earlier. How do you, how do you decide? What do you do? You create laws. You have reasonable people elected to consider the question and decide, here's what we're going to do. And then you have to have judges who honorably follow the law. And you have to have prosecutors who honorably charge real offenses under the law and don't just make things up trying to, to punish people by the power they have to throw them into the process. And so we wrestle with that. We define it. You know, I sometimes a friend of mine has a daughter who, um, sweet young lady, she's an adult of age now, but I help them obtain a guardianship order from the court over her because she doesn't function at the same level that she would need to. It would be dangerous for her to be out there being able to be put in under contract with somebody because she might make decisions that she can't live up to. Mm -hmm. And so we have guardianship as one of the tools we use to protect those who can't function at the level they would need to, to, to live up to all the responsibilities of being an adult in our society. So it would seem that most of these things work really well with mostly moral people, but we're not always dealing with mostly moral people, right? At one point, there were some guys who really thought they were doing moral actions, and they ended up flying some planes into some buildings, and everyone got real mad about it. 
And I, I was one of those people, pretty mad about it. And so when you have stuff like that, and when those types of people get in charge and they get to set the laws and what morality is, and you can't do anything about it, like, I don't, I don't know if you see where I'm coming from there. This idea that morality is determined by what most people agree with or want to set as law seems to be flawed in that if most people agree that you not having a gun is a real great thing, then you don't get to have a gun and it doesn't really matter what you believe. And if most people agree that you should be dead, it works the same way. So like taking that logic to the extreme, it seems to fall apart. Well, historically, it seems that most of the time, the majority of the people choose the right. When the majority of the people go the wrong direction, societies move into decline very quickly and, and they don't survive. I mean, there's not a better check. If you put somebody in charge of deciding right and wrong for you and not the majority, then you've moved to the potential for tyranny immediately, right? One of the things that we didn't really talk about in the Constitution is that the structure that it creates is a separation of powers so that nobody can assume that authority. Because as things get worse and worse, one of the dangers we have is that people start saying, we just need somebody to fix this. And I, I encourage you to listen to the conversations that are going to be taking place over the next few years as you begin to be ready to vote, because there's going to be more and more cries out for people to give authority to the president to just solve this problem. That's really dangerous. But as, as we move down that spectrum toward chaos and, and lack of morality in the people, we want more and more governmental power and we sacrifice our liberty by giving it to somebody. Well, also, I think there's a lot of personal responsibility because like you were saying, there's checks and balances, but there's personal checks. Like, I think simply living in America, the foundation and the philosophies that we've, you know, grown off of is you can only really control yourself, right? So when you're asking yourself about you know, your morality or something that you feel strongly like, okay, well, does this encroach on other people? And like, is it going to be harmful to those around me? And I think that's simply like something you need to start personally and like raise your children to believe because, you know, that's important too. If we raise, <laughs> I don't want to say like bad children, if we, if we forget these ideas, then it is very likely that things will fall apart. So I feel like I was raised quite well. Very proud of my parents. They're great. I was never taught what laws there are. Like there was not like so many there's times. There's a lot. There's, there's way too many. Um. So many times as a kid, you know, you'd hear someone there, it's illegal to be out after 10 p.m. if you're, you know, a kid, you know, some kid is going to make up a lot. But there was never a point where someone went over it with me and was like, hey, bud, you're going to go out and exist in the world. And these are the laws you need to follow. And so, I don't know, is there a class that was it was it an elective and I forgot to take it? Or am I going to take it next year? Is there a class that's going to tell me what all the rules are so I don't break them? And if not, how can I possibly be expected to not be a criminal if I don't even know what the rules are? Even judges don't know all the laws today. One of the jobs of the attorney is to educate the judge on the law of the particular case. We have a, a saying, ignorance of the law is no excuse. And that made sense when the law was based on common sense. The common law, which we haven't really talked about and don't have time to, but the common law was based on common sense and precedent 
under the common law not only made sense, but was understandable. And so you just basically you understood and, and the culture was such that you don't do this and you don't do that. And, and logic told you why. Today, we're in an era when we make laws just because they want to. They decide this or that is legal or illegal, and it can flip back and forth. Look at what happened since Joe Biden took office. Lots of things that were going one direction are now going the other on the whim of one new president, right? And that makes it really hard to know what am I within or without the law on what I'm doing today. We have so many laws. You're right. It's, there's an innumerable number of laws. It's really impossible to know them all. And so that's part of the problem of moving down that spectrum is that the, the number of laws multiplies exponentially the farther you get down. And, and the end result isn't freedom and protection, it's tyranny. When you, have a, when you have a government that has a law against anything you could possibly do, it's impossible to be free under that kind of a system. So let me just sort of recap for this question. We're tending towards one authoritarian, charismatic leader who's going to step in and save everyone. He's really going to restore Germany. It's going to be great this time. And we are looking for that power to save us, which is just creating more rules, more chaos, more criminals. What do we do to stop this? Obviously, you're not the Messiah. You, you might not have a perfect answer for this question. But what, what do you think we should be doing? I think what we need to be doing, number one, is being truly moral people that, I mean, you guys don't even get change when you go to the store anymore. <laughs> if the cashier gave you more change than you should have, you go back and return it. Today, it's of all course. done digitally, right? But you don't sell your integrity for a nickel or a dime or a dollar, right? And you treat others the same and you study and you learn and you build your community. I mean, you guys, if you've read Left to Tell, if you've read The Hiding Place, you see how communities turn on each other. Well, start in your own community. How many of your neighbors do you not know? How many of your neighbors have you not spent any time trying to build a relationship with? What would it take for your community to turn on itself? Suppose we had a disaster where you know, they say that the water that comes into the valley crosses the fault 19 times. What if we didn't have water for 60 days in the valley? What if the highways that bring food in were broken up and food couldn't come in for six weeks? What's going to happen? How are we going to handle that? Those who have food and those who don't, does that just become another us versus them breakdown of society? Do we have relationships with our neighbors? Do we have the kind of community where we don't fall apart? It has to start where you are. We, I can't fix Washington. I don't know if anybody can, but I can't. I don't have any access to it. I don't have any connections there that do anything, but I can work on my own neighborhood. I can work on my family, on my connections. And, and build that relationship. So when crises come, we don't fall apart. We fall together. We build each other up. That's, that's the best I have to offer. We're, in terms of politics, the history follows a cycle, and our society is in decay. And, and I don't know that there's a good answer, except when things fall apart, don't let it fall apart where you are, right? So let, let the big cities burn themselves down. Don't do it where you are, right? If we walk across the street and we look at the district here, if every one of those businesses closed because of a huge economic decline and they shuttered their doors, if nobody touched that for two years, assuming that the government didn't try to control everything and just let us start getting back to normal, 
all of those resources could be put back to use. Somebody else would open a store here. Somebody would open a store there. Somebody would open a restaurant there. And it would come back and we would have all those. Re- Just because the economy crashes doesn't mean all of the infrastructure disappears. But when we can't control ourselves, when we get mad and we burn it all down, we're going back to the dark ages. Build your community so that we don't do that. Stand up for that. Stand When you see something going wrong in your community, speak out. Get your, pe- your friends and your neighbors and say, we can't stand for this. Let's go peacefully do what we can to prevent the decay and destruction of our community. You know, this one really reminds me of a book I read one second after. Have you read it? Mm-hmm. It's good. Uh, who wrote it? Let's see. William R. For- Forsh- Forston? Forston? I forget how he says it. Yeah. But yeah, basically, that's exactly what happens is, you know, after an EMP hits, you know, the United States, like it's, there's no like electronics, there's, there's nothing, everything falls apart, you know, maybe one person has a car because it's super old. And I don't remember how it actually has no computerized controls in it. So it keeps carbureted. Yes, exactly. And everything goes under, under martial law. And he like they're able to rebuild a community because you know they have like okay this is like don't don't take the medicine from the old folks home don't be a bad person and if so you're gonna get killed which you know it's scary but that's what they had to do but then you see the opposite of communities that are like traveling to other to neighboring you know cities because they've destroyed everything around them and they've created a gang and it's just gang violence and wars and it's just complete opposites and anyway that's just what it reminded me of well and sadly at the bottom of everything else violence is the last resort whether it's offensive or defensive and to not be able to protect yourself is a serious risk yeah we usually ask our guests for a challenge but you've already given us a great challenge which is get involved in your communities you know and the government but also in establishing relationships so my question for you today is a little different is if you could add a right to the bill of rights what would it be or if you could remove one oh <laughs> <laughs> if i could remove there's none that i would remove i think we need to remember i don't know that it's something i would add but liberty has to include the right to succeed and the right to fail yes it's okay to fail. It's face. okay to get it wrong. It's okay to land on your face. It's not the government's role to protect us from all harm. It never was. And the more we go down that road, the government that has the power to give you everything you want has the power to take everything you have. And you just don't want to go there. Those who would trade safety for liberty shall have n- neither? Deserve neither and shall lose both. Yes, deserve neither and shall Something like that. There's a, the Biden FDA is planning on banning menthol cigarettes. And I, I find it one of the dumbest things a human has done recently. You know, the idea that I also we, think smoking is one of the dumbest things humans have done in the past like I 50 agree. years. So. I think De Bono's caffeine habit or the fact that I can't stay away from donuts is pretty dumb as well. But is but it the yet, government's place yeah, exactly. to protect you from your own stupidity? It's the same as New right. York regulating the size that a soda cup can be. Right, right, right. Defense, the government's role is to protect us from each other. And in very specific and limited ways. It's not it's not there to protect us from our own stupidity. So takeaway for this episode, well, there's lots of takeaways, but one is like you said, be moral and be involved so the government doesn't have to. Thank you so much for listening today. Go out there, engage in the great conversation. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Paradigm Pod or email us at podcast at paradigmhide.org. And if you want to hear a part two 
definitely email us. Please rate us five stars on iTunes, like us on all our social medias, and please share the podcast with your friends if you think there's anything valuable to be learned here. Thanks for listening.